Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. That means they can't have universal mail-in voting. Being president doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. We'll be breaking in to report live from Manchester, Connecticut, a.k.a. Silk City, once home to the world's largest silk mill, currently home to no less than 10 different Dunkin' Donut locations. Because if you're going to forget a town in Connecticut, why not forget Danbury? Because, and this is true, Danbury. From its charming railway museum to its historic Hearthstone Castle, Danbury, Connecticut can my whole... John Oliver, if you're listening, and I know you're watching, now, (laughs) now you can't leave. (laughs) That was Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton defending his city's honor after HBO's Last Week Tonight host, John Oliver, ranted against Danbury. We'll dig into why later. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut also got a mention from late show host Stephen Colbert, who pointed out the primary system is broken when the votes of some states, like ours, don't count. And are you still saying wow after Michelle Obama hit all the points at the Democratic National Convention the other night? And in the mix, you also heard President Donald Trump. On the panel today, Caitlin Krasselt is back, statewide political reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. Caitlin, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also here on Zoom, Balasi Koo, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Balasi, you're still scratching your head at that John Oliver uh, rant? Absolutely, and go Hawks. <laughs> and Colin McEnroe's here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy. And you can join us on Twitter. Find us at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, have you been watching the Democratic National Convention? Tonight, the lineup includes former President Barack Obama and Senator Kamala Harris will give her a VP acceptance speech from Delaware. The Republicans hold their convention next week, and it'll also be virtual. So I wanted to get everyone's reaction to watching this. Uh, Colin, I'll start with you. Uh, This is all virtual for the first time. It's historic. What's been your reaction? I resisted the idea at first just because I actually like national political conventions. I even like state political conventions, and I like being at them and covering them, and I've covered a bunch of national political conventions. And I think you lose a certain amount of immediacy. I mean, you 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 notice it big time uh, because a lot of the, the things have to be taped in advance. They have higher production values. But, for example, Michelle Obama, when she was taping her speech, did not know that Kamala Harris was going to be the vice presidential presidential nominee. So it's not in there. And in fact, if you look in the deep background, there's actually an old style Biden sign that, you know, it's not the Biden Harris uh, logo that they've developed since then. So you lose a little of that. You lose the energy of the crowd. But I do think that they've been very, very good at using production values effectively and in nowhere as much as in last night's roll call, which was really kind of a trip. I mean, almost literally a trip as you, you know, you were conducted around to all these outdoor venues showcasing the landscape of various uh, places and people talking in quirky ways uh, or very sincere ways uh, about where they're from and what the problems are. Um, I guess the last thing that I would say is that, you know, there is a little bit of a scattershot quality to it. So last night, 
the quote-unquote keynote address was actually delivered by 17 different mm -hmm. so-called up-and-coming speakers or members of the party. The problem with that is if you have 17 of them, there's just no way uh, other than, you know, Abrams and maybe Connor Lamb, you, you just don't really pick up on who any of these people are. And there's a sort of ADHD quality to the speech itself because one person says a sentence or two, cut to somebody else, cut to somebody else. So some of that stuff where they are striving for extra kinds of representation, I think maybe they've taken it a little bit too far. Uh, but, you know, in other ways, they've been able to really use the format well. I'll say one more thing. I thought Jill Biden's walk and talk last night in the school was really good. That was directed by the people who made the documentary RBG. So, you know, you can bring in some people with some real production talent and directing talent to do this stuff. The real question I had for you, Colin, is could you taste the Rhode Island calamari when that platter came out? Well, I, I've been told uh, from behind the scenes that there was some squid pro quo involved. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Caitlin, how'd Idaho look in that roll, roll call? I honestly didn't watch the roll call beginning to end. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't watch the convention beginning to end. I watched in the way I think a lot of millennials do, which is in viral clips and news articles the next day and as it was happening. Um, I don't get as excited about political conventions as Colin seems to. Um, I think they're pretty outdated. And uh, I think that was really evident in the confusion over AOC seconding the uh, nomination for Bernie Sanders, which was a formality um that she had to do she was asked to do it it wasn't um you know it wasn't scandalous uh, but there was a lot of confusion out there because people aren't familiar with political conventions outside a very niche group of people who get really excited about these things um and i think colin's right one of the things that's missing when you go virtual is that um that camaraderie of in-person kind of wheeling and dealing and interacting with other people um and well so while it might be exciting to you know for some people to watch um from the comfort of their home i think uh some of that political excitement is lost for people my age <laughs> sorry colin well no let me just push back a little bit and say that for example Barack Obama's keynote address in 2004 changed the entire narrative of the Democratic Party. I mean, there are things that happen at conventions, but I mean, that's a really good, fairly recent example. You know, things were, you know, I was up in Boston for that too, but things were not the same after that. And he was, you know, suddenly just vaulted into the national conversation. Uh, you know, it, it, he was unknown at that time. Uh, and four years later, he was president. So I do think important things happen at conventions, memorable things happen at conventions, whether it's Ted Kennedy's uh, speech in 1980 or Patrick Buchanan's disastrous speech uh, in, in Houston. But can, political conventions make up a lot of the political narrative, narrative of American life. I agree life. that important things happen at conventions, but I think that you can get those important things by not watching three hours of television <laughs> multiple nights in a row. Mm. Bilal, what's your take? Wow, interesting sort of back and forth right there. I, I actually love this, to, to be honest. Um, you know, part of the reason for me is I'm, I'm not a big fan of the kind of money that gets spent to 
normally pull off these conventions and also where that money typically comes from in terms of the corporate sponsors and other things. And so this sort of scaled down way of doing it to me was just interesting. I had a similar reaction to, to Colin to the actual roll call. I thought it was just phenomenal. I loved the way in which it was uh, staged. I loved the the way it went, in which it reflected the, the Democratic Party, the type of people who are in that sort of base of the party, the kind of folks who Joe Biden needs to turn out in probably record numbers in order to win, such as women of color, especially black women who were featured prominently, um, indigenous people. And so as a an act of sort of, you know, stage craft. I mean, it was just phenomenal um, in that sense. And I think it raises the bar for Republicans in terms of trying to present something that really reflects America and its diversity and it not seem like it's forced or fake on their part. Um, and I also think that, you know, Colin is right. I mean, there isn't this big speech moment like you had with Barack Obama. It was interesting to sort of watch people in living rooms or standing in front of flags. I mean, and, and not hearing audiences cheer, um, which I think can sort of elevate a speech and help people have that big um, sort of moment. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, it's interesting um, when you sort of talk about the way in which young people, for example, may tune out conventions. This is something that's been going on for a while, whether it's this kind of production or just your regular old convention. Um, and part of it is conventions have changed. The drama that you used to see in the past, perhaps where there was a real sort of moment where people wondered who would be the nominee, that's pretty much gone away. But on the other hand, this really creates an interesting sort of situation where I think it, you know, the way in which they presented things, it really lends itself to sound bites for the next day, um, news cycle, um, in order to get snippets to really sort of highlight people. And so this convention really, I think, steps into this current media age or media era that we're actually in and the way in which people consume the news and information, especially young people. And so they may, in fact, tune in to a lot more of this because they can get those sound bites, those those clips. Um, and because, again, it's been staged in that way, I think, to accommodate the sort of news consumption habits of people today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Colin, we know in 2016, the Democratic Party was certainly uh, not unified. What do you think from just watching the convention so far, uh, seeing the people that have been featured? Is the party doing a better job this time around at trying to unify uh, its members? Well, of course, you know, it's it's a poor barometer in some ways, because mm -hmm. once again, everything here, almost everything here is edited, you know, mm -hmm. and things are selected in very careful ways. So, you know, they'll, they're, they can really tell you the story that they want to tell you. Starting in, since about 76 or 80, uh, political conventions have been television events, first and foremost, and a way for the party to communicate the message that it wants. I, I would sort of point to uh, three things, one of which Bilal has already pointed out. So I think one group of voters that they're going after are not even Democrats. They are sort of Biden curious independents and Biden curious Republicans. There are plenty of Republicans now who do not think they can vote for Donald Trump. The question is, can they vote for the Democratic candidate? And I certainly, you know, we've seen this parade now uh, of Republican never Trumpers. Last night it was Colin Powell, uh, Chuck Hagel, uh, even from the beyond, John McCain and a pretty 
poignant uh, video narrated by his widow uh, and references to Dick Luger. We saw just rank and file Republican voters uh, on night one uh, in edited clips just talking about how they were not going to be able to vote for Trump. They were going to vote for Biden. So and and of course, John Kasich that night, too, at the crossroads. Um, So that's one group. Now, Bilal, I think, is right that one of the problems from, from 2016 was that Clinton's candidacy could not maintain the same level of excitement among young voters, voters of color, both uh, African-American voters and Latino voters. Um, and, and they are at pains this time to see if they can regenerate that. That was one of the primary messages of Michelle Obama's speech. Vote like it's 2008 or like it's 2012. Uh, and you got to come out. And then I think the last thing that they're really working on right now isn't so much an appeal to a specific voter or to party unity or anything. It's more, you know, there was a sense, fair or unfair, that Hillary Clinton was not liked. Um, A lot of time was spent last night establishing the fact that Joe Biden is nice to people he meets on elevators and, you know, people he meets on who work on trains, you know, and stuff like that. He's just a really nice person. He treats people really well. Everybody likes him. Uh, Even John McCain, Republicans like him. So I think that that was another big message last night in terms of party unity around policy. I mean, it's sort of a separate conversation, which I'd be happy to have. But. You know, I think those were the three big you know, targets in the first two nights. I like that term Biden curious. Uh, Caitlin, we were talking earlier about young people uh, maybe tuning out uh, from this convention, uh, watching in the traditional way versus getting snippets. But do you think that the party's doing enough to attract young voters to Biden? Because he's not someone that is very someone you get excited about. Yeah, I think um Colin really brought up a good point um, in terms of the, the niceness factor of Biden. And that is really an appeal to a certain demographic of voters. And I'm not sure that that younger generation of voters who is really politically engaged right now because of all of the things that have happened in the last year, um, especially in the last six months, is, is really... I don't think the way that you target them is by being nice. Um, I think they're, they are interested in policy and they are, a lot of them are political purists and they're not happy with Biden as their candidate because he doesn't meet a lot of the criteria. And I spend a lot of time talking to people who, who are looking for the candidate that perfectly aligns with their values, as opposed to the candidate that best aligns with their values, even if it's not perfect. Um, And I think, that's going to be the struggle in engaging young voters um, and convincing them to vote for Joe Biden. I wanted to play a clip also, uh, former Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, uh, speaking uh, in uh, this virtual convention, saying the nation is faced by a president of cowardice. Abrams said Biden will confront the nation's challenges instead of undermining elections to keep his job. Uh, Here's more from her. In a democracy, We do not elect saviors. We cast our ballots for those who see our struggles and pledge to serve, who hear our dreams and work to make them real, who defend our way of life by protecting our right to vote. Uh, Bilal, we know that a lot of uh, people sat out voting in 2016, including uh, many black Americans. When you hear from Stacey Abrams and the message that she's putting out there, I mean, do you think that it's going to bring more people out to vote, especially people of color? 
You know, when I talk to people about this election, I, I really say that, you know, Joe Biden's ability or his success really lays in the hand of, you know, black women in particular mm -hmm. turning out to vote um, this election cycle. And not just turning out to vote, but turning out in record numbers. When you think about um, the success, the ability of Barack Obama to win the presidency twice, it really, um, he did that on the back of a record turnout among women of color, especially black women um, who showed up at the polls for him and also young people who showed up at the polls for him in order to do that. You know, I, I sort of also say to people when I'm talking about that, if if people of color didn't show up at the polls, uh, Donald Trump would win this thing in a landslide because he's going to receive the support of most whites who are going to vote for him. Um, and Republicans would probably get a supermajority in the Senate if only whites voted. So the Democratic Party's fate is linked to people of color. It's linked to especially the turnout and the activism of women of color. And so when you saw that roll call and you get a sense of who some many of these speakers are, it's a reflection of that reality. Um, you look at across the country, the leadership and a number of cities, whether it's Atlanta or Washington, D.C. or Chicago, um, Black women are leading those cities. I think adding um, Kamala Harris to his ticket is accepting the reality that the future of this party is a future that will be a multiracial, diverse party, um, and that's how they will be successful into the future. And so, you know, Abrams and others are right that it's critically important for people to turn out um, if Joe Biden is going to win. And for many people, this is perhaps the most important. And I know for me, certainly as an African-American, this is the most important election in my lifetime. Before we move on, Colin, you know, what do you want to hear from Kamala Harris tonight and even uh, uh, Joe Biden tomorrow as he formally accepts his party's nomination? Um, well, first of all, uh, just to build on one thing that, that uh, Bilal is saying, you know, one of the lessons of all this, and it's, this is not a new insight, politics is about addition, not subtraction. So one of the things that you try to do is add and you try to grow. And so they're looking at a whole bunch of different sectors in which uh, they want to grow, either grow back to their strength in 08 or in 12 or to add to add new voters. And I think that's very much the style of this convention. I, you know, in terms of acceptance speeches. First of all, they're going to be short, way shorter than what we've seen in the past. Everything's shorter. They actually got Bill Clinton to give a short speech. So, uh, you know, that's I a good thing, Colin. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, I actually one of the great things about this whole thing is that the speeches are shorter. They're edited. There's a director there yelling at people if they go too long. And I think that's good. You know, in terms of policy points, look, Biden's in an unusual position in the sense that he got where he got by being by tracking a little bit more towards the center and losing the kind of people that Caitlin was talking about. Um, and he's got to speak to both groups. So if you look at the actual platform, it's both unsatisfactory and satisfactory in the same way. For example, there's no legalization of marijuana, but there is decriminalization of marijuana and a kind of an invitation to the states to, to, to legalize. There isn't uh, Medicare for all. There is a very strong public option. And you go through all of this stuff, it's kind of the same way. And he kind of has to say both things. Right. He, he has to say there's no abolition of ICE. There's no real defund the police thing. There's instead a pretty comprehensive call for criminal justice reform. He's got to talk to both groups. 
the, to the people that Caitlin talked about who just don't think he does enough. The prescription mm-hmm. isn't strong enough. And also to the people who would, in fact, be turned off, you know, if he went too far. Once again, those Biden curious centrists, independents, some in some cases, Republicans who are prepared to vote for him under certain circumstances. It's a good time to talk about voter suppression. We know that President Donald Trump has attacked the Postal Service, claiming without evidence that allowing voting by mail will lead to widespread fraud. Some Democrats are concerned the post office is going to be starved of resources by this administration at a time when the Postal Service will be relied on quickly to get ballots to voting officials. Now, in Connecticut's recent primary, we know that Democrats were more likely to use absentee ballots than Republicans. Below, again, strange timing to cut hours, remove machines at this uh, cash-strapped agency so close to an election. What are some of your concerns uh, as we see, even in Connecticut, more and more people wanting to, to vote this way? Wow. You, you have an hour to hear all my concerns. Um, <laughs> Go for it. I, you know, I think, you know, this, um, the, you know, this is really, at one level, very shocking, right? It's shocking in the sense that this isn't something that people are trying to hide. The president isn't trying to hide what his intentions are. And so, you know, this this is a playbook that especially the Republican Party has used in the post-civil rights era. Um, Back in the 1960s, the party decided, look, we're not going to win the votes of African-Americans, for example, or win the votes of many people of color. And so the strategy really shifted to how do we sort of maximize the turnout and participation in the party among white voters and how do we suppress the votes of people of color. And so, you know, since the 1960s, Republicans have been engaged in a, a wide variety of tactics to try to suppress the vote. And Donald Trump is just a sort of continuation of what has been a decades long strategy to do that. But what's amazing about this moment of just, is just how brazen and how out he is about what he is attempting to do and the way in which he's trying to undermine institutions like the United the, the Postal Service, which not only harms voters, but also harms veterans who, for example, receive their uh, medication through the mail. It slows down people's, you know, checks in the mail. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's an incredible attack, um, but it's the continuation of, a, of, of attacks on the very sort of institutions and the very ideas of this country. And so in many ways, what this president is doing is not surprising, but then it is surprising because he's just so transparent about what his motivations are and why he's doing the things that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should note that uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoys has a new promise to postpone these changes in the U.S. Postal Service operations. Uh, but again, uh, Connecticut Democrats saying yesterday they're not satisfied with this promise, uh, so to speak. Uh, Caitlin, you uh, have been reporting on uh, what's been happening here in Connecticut, uh, not only with um, how ballot applications and ballots came back for the primary, but now what local town clerks and others are hearing from the Secretary of the State about um, preparing for this November election. So um, any snafus that were uh, that the Secretary of the State hopes to, to fix this time around in terms of using that independent mailhouse? Well, it was uh, announced yesterday that the state actually will not be using an independent mailhouse um, for mailing of the actual ballots. So the state, the way it has historically worked in Connecticut, um, which is very strict, about 
um, who can vote absentee um, up until this year is that, you know, a very small percentage of ballots are mailed out. And so town clerks and uh, registrars handle that process because it's, you know, out of one and a half million votes, it's maybe 130,000. Um, but this year, it's expected to be over a million votes will be cast by absentee ballot in Connecticut. And uh, after some issues um, with the primary in which I think only 230,000 people or so ended up mailing in there or ended up voting, um, I can't how many actually voted by absentee um, going into November, they've opted to, to have the town uh, clerks actually mail the ballot. Um, and that's caused some drama because that's a lot of work uh, <laughs> to mail over a million ballots um, across all 169 towns. Their reasoning for that is that there are over 500 ballot styles um, and so it would be uh, too costly to have a, a third party mail house you know, fire up all of its physical machines, run relatively small batches. Um, but Connecticut, because it has historically not had widespread mail-in voting, was not really prepared, uh, nor was it equipped to prepare in three months for a widespread mail-in election. And I think that's where a lot of the, the root of a lot of the problems are. So Caitlin saying that there's not going to be any independent mail house uh, being used uh, for the November election. Uh, Colin, we know that the second district primary was just resolved yesterday. It's a week after uh, the election. Are you concerned that this is not going to go um, as expected as we head into November? Well, I think we in the press have to do some expectation setting here. You know, I mean, uh, the adjustment bill that was passed during the special session, I believe, doubles the amount of time that town clerks have to report results. So instead of 48 hours, they have 96 hours. And we have to prepare our listeners, readers, viewers for the fact that, you know, election day and night will go differently than it has in the past. And everybody has to kind of get used to that. I mean, we're not going to have any trouble calling the presidential election here, but some of these uh, smaller elections, General Assembly elections, elections and things like that. They may take a while uh, for all the reasons we're talking about. I quickly want to say, I do think the Trump administration picked the wrong fight here. The Pew Research Center polls Americans every few years on how they feel about government agencies. 91% of people like the U.S. Postal Service. It's the most popular government agency in America. 91% of people don't like anything, you know, but but they like the Postal Service. Uh, and it's also a story that people understand. They might not understand Ukrainian defense appropriations uh, as a quid pro quo for, uh, you know, for some political investigation of opponents. Maybe that's too complicated. People understand delivering the mail. They deal with the mail six of their seven days of their week. They get it and they know their mail carriers. This was the wrong fight to pick. But, you know, in terms of what DeJoy said, I think it's important to say he hasn't made it clear whether he will reverse the things he's done already. So those mail sorters that suddenly disappeared from post offices. Not clear yet. Are they coming back or did the damage you do? Is that going to stand? One last thing. One important thing about this is the Postal Workers Union. You know, DeJoy didn't announce a lot of the stuff that he was going to do. The reason we found out about this stuff that he would have probably done pretty quietly is that there's a Postal Workers Union who has told the American people day by day, week by week, this is happening now. That's happening now. This is how we used to deliver a mail. Now look how they're making us deliver the mail. They've played a really important role in informing people. 
Before we head to break, Bilal, given what Colin has talked about, you know, if we know and are concerned that there are going to be delays in how mail will be delivered and we're going to see a historic number of absentee ballots coming back, should the Secretary of the State's office do a better job communicating to voters that you can use these drop boxes in towns across our state? Absolutely. And I think we may need to think very seriously about actually putting more drop boxes out there so that voters can can use them. I mean, Caitlin's article was, you know, quite disturbing. I mean, there's been a lot of missteps by the Secretary of State's office in trying to prepare the state for, you know, an unprecedented moment in in which, you know, literally over a million people may in fact uh, express interest in voting uh, by absentee ballot. I know that, you know, there's talk of another special session coming up in September and certainly we will need to push during that special session um, some ideas that may help Connecticut better prepare for the, for the November election, which will come very quickly. And so certainly getting those apps, applications out to voters uh, very early is going to be critically important. Um, hiring more staff uh, by town clerks and others to help sort through those applications and make sure the ballots get out to people is going to be critically important. Um, there needs to be money in order to print those ballots up that needs to be done. And I think there needs to be involvement by the Secretary of State's office. I got the sense from reading the article, she kind of washed her hands of it and said, it's your job, not our job. And the Secretary of State can't be missing in action when it comes to uh, dealing with this, because this, uh, at least for me right now, um, there seems to be a storm on the horizon and a really uh, um, terrible sort of rollout of this idea of vote by mail here in the state of Connecticut. Um, and certainly, I think it really gives us momentum to really think about how we shift to some election reforms like early voting in our state and also um, doing, you know, really uh, institutionalizing this vote by mail option for people because we've got to make this process much better and do a much better job than we did um, in, aug- in August uh, with the primary and make sure that those hiccups and you know those errors, unforced errors, don't occur in November. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. You just heard Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Colin McEnroe's here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. And Caitlin Crassell, the statewide political reporter for Hearst. Uh, coming up, will there be repercussions for Republican Party officials in our state who knew about a video of alleged domestic violence by a candidate but did not stop that candidate from getting the party's nomination. And speaking of videos, did you see the video of a Yukon party in a dorm room in a pandemic? We'll talk about that all coming up on The Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, Caitlin Krasselt, statewide political reporter for Hearst, Connecticut. Bilal Sigku, associate professor of politics and government at the University of Hartford. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, also a columnist at Hearst. You can join us. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Now, departing House Minority Leader Themis Claridis and 2018 candidate for Governor Bob Stefanowski are among those calling for state Republican Party 
Chairman J.R. Romano to step down. The party-endorsed candidate in the second congressional district primary was arrested the night before the primary on domestic violence charges. Romano and some other second congressional district delegates have been told about a video allegedly showing candidate Thomas Gilmore choking and punching a woman. But Gilmore won the party's endorsement at a district convention anyway. Late Tuesday, the Secretary of the State's office said Gilmer's opponent, Justin Anderson, came out on top in the recount of last week's primary by 81 votes out of almost 19,000 ballots counted. This is such a a strange and infuriating story. Caitlin, first off, why didn't someone call the police when the video first emerged? What do we know? No, I'm not really clear on that. Um, Why? Well, allegedly it's because the victim asked not to, not to contact the police. And often respecting the wishes of the victim is the first priority. However, um, Anderson, who won, um, apparently decided that, you know, that was no longer in his best interest, and he did take the video to police. Um, it's unclear why he didn't do that sooner, um, if that was something that he was going to do all along. And it's it's infuriating. I, I have not seen the video, nor do I care to, um, as I've read the description of it, I don't know that I, I want to watch. Um, but if this is something that is best happened and people knew about it, um, there's just a lot to, to work through and figure out why no one said anything. You've done a lot of reporting on workplace harassment. Are there similarities when you see how some state Republicans reacted in this situation and how organizations react when there are harassment allegations brought forth? Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. Uh, It's a confusing and difficult position to be in uh, when someone comes to you and says, you know, I have heard about this. Um, It's unclear why the state party um, you know, upon hearing these allegations, didn't, you know, conduct their own sort of internal investigation into whether or not it was true. Um, they, I guess, kind of felt that it wasn't their place and that if the allegations were true, it should be taken to police. Um, I, I am not in a position to say whether or not that was the right decision, um, having not been there. Um, but it does seem like there could have been more done, especially... Uh, given the allegations about how many people knew that this video and these allegations existed. Um, So it's, I don't envy the people that were in the position to to make these decisions, but I also, uh, it seems that more could have been done. And I think uh, our colonist Dan Hart pointed out a really um, important thing, and that's that the Republican Party doesn't have great candidates right now. Um, they're struggling to get a lot of their their top tier candidates to be on the ballot in the year when Donald Trump is also on the ballot, and that's how you end up with two candidates who, you know, one is a, you know allegedly involved in violence and one um, knew about it and didn't do anything. Colin, uh, when we hear Caitlin talk about uh, the people that are responsible for making decisions when these allegations came forth, uh, there's J.R. Romano, of course, but there's also a state party vice chair, uh, Susan Hatfield, who's a prosecutor. I just want to hear your thoughts on how this has been handled. I think she has a bigger, even bigger problem than J.R. I come back to J.R. in just a second. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, the account she gave of herself in speaking to Daniela Altamari of The Current 
was kind of damning. I mean, she basically described her exchange with Justin Anderson as a situation where she said, if you tell me certain things, I I will have to go do something about that. I will have to go report them because she is also a state prosecutor. So don't tell me those things. And he didn't. Uh, I mean, it was like, you know, it was uh, just it was like Sergeant Schultz and Hogan's Heroes. I guess that's sort of a dated reference. But he just like she just clearly didn't want to know something that a prosecutor should absolutely want to know. As far as J.R. Romano goes, I mean, he really has nine lives. And as has been suggested here, he hasn't doesn't have a lot of successes he can point to. I mean, one of the things that typically preserve you if you're a state party chairman, you've got other problems, is that you win some elections, and he really doesn't. Um, I think it's impressive that Claritas and Whitcoast, uh, Candelora, some of the other Republicans have stepped forward. I'm a little less impressed by Bob Stefanowski because his wife, Amy, who's a, a town chairwoman and on the state central committee and would be one of 72 votes on this, says, well, she's not quite so sure yet, so maybe this isn't so bad. She needs to talk to some more people. So the Stefanowski's kind of took bites out of both sides of the apple. I'll just quickly say, this is not an isolated incident. For example, two years ago, when Matt Lesser was attacked with a blatantly anti-Semitic mail piece by his opponent, JR said, well, I don't really see anything Jewish about this. This is the kind of thing Democrats always complain about when they're losing or something. I mean, he, he doesn't, he's not the grown-up in the room. He's the brat in the room. And it's led to some other problems. They've had a spate now of Republican Party officials and actual uh, town officials around Connecticut being caught on social media with just really scurrilous posts about Kamala Harris suggesting that she slept her way to the top and all these, all this kind of ugly, these ugly memes. They need a grown-up. They need a grown-up to run the party, police the party, and police its tone. Right now, they have exactly the kind of party that J.R. Romano would be expected to deliver to them. And I talked about addition and subtraction before. They're going to lose people doing this. You know, I mean, a lot of women are going to look at this in particular and say, wow, this is clearly something they don't take seriously. Mm. Uh, Before we move on, Caitlin, uh, J.R. Romano, what has he said? Is he going to step down or stay in stay in this position for another year he has no intention of resigning uh, but it is worth noting that his term is up in june and um he has no intention to run again um so it's he has no intention to resign um and i mean who wants that job if he does resign <laughs> there's three months until an election um i think that ultimately becomes the question is, you know, does he just drive this out um, to get through November and and then, you know, the party kind of resets in June or does he resign right now? Um, and I, he's, he's not intending to resign. I've spoken to him at length. Um, and, and that is uh, part of the calculus there is that, you know, if I, if he wants to add, step into that role. If I could add just something very quickly, um, What's amazing to me about this is, is just the idea that people would sit on this kind of information for any kind of reason. I think the idea that somehow we can be silent about violence against women, um, like what was described in news reports on that video, is actually just mind boggling, right? And I think the idea that people can survive this, and if they in fact do survive this and not lose their jobs as a result of that, um, 
you know, is a, a very bad statement about where we're at in our political body that winning office or having the ability to compete to win office is so important that you would ignore this. And we've seen an example of that at the national level with our own president. Um, it's just mind boggling to me. And hopefully uh, heads will roll and people will be held accountable for this because um, this is just not acceptable and it shouldn't be acceptable. And we should all be horrified by what was described in that video. Uh, you know, Bilal, before uh, we head to break, you know, I have to ask you, uh, you know, they made some important points on this particular story, but we're also still in a pandemic. College students are coming back on campus. You're a professor. You're heading back soon. I just want to ask you how you're feeling. Yeah, I'll, I'll be headed back next week. I mean, I think like most of my colleagues at the university, um, there is concern that we have about not only our own health and safety, but certainly the health and safety of our students and, you know, and other staff and other colleagues at the, the university. We are in the, the middle of an interesting kind of experiment here of trying to have some normalcy in the middle of a pandemic. If what's happened at UNC Chapel Hill, Notre Dame, Michigan State, and a growing number of other institutions are any kind of indicator of this, this will not last very long, that we will be um, remote or online very, very soon. And, um, but at the same time, I, at, at a certain level, understand why universities are pushing so hard to do this. Um, you know, lots of universities will go deep into debt if they're unable to capture those dollars from residence halls and getting students back on the, on the campus. There's a real possibility that you know, this will open up a real crisis in higher ed where insolvency will be a reality for a number of universities. State support for higher ed has been declining for decades. And so the kind of bailout of higher ed that we probably need in order to make this possible for students to stay home and to teach online is probably not likely to come. And so as a result of that, um, I feel like I have been deemed an essential worker and told that you have to go out there and you have to work. I didn't have the option of saying no to this. And so um, unless I was willing to take a, a serious pay cut to do that. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. That's Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Caitlin Crassold also here on the Wheelhouse, statewide political reporter for Hearst, Connecticut, and Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show. Coming up, Connecticut makes the big time, but not in a good way. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Recently, Connecticut has been mentioned on national talk shows as the butt of some jokes. Tonight's show host Stephen Colbert did a segment spoofing wall-to-wall TV news coverage of Connecticut's presidential primary, making the point that the primary system is broken because votes in some states are meaningless. Here's Colbert. Connecticut, of course, comes from a Mohegan Pequot word, meaning land of many khakis. Connecticut, the nutmeg state. Read some democracy on your electoral nod, 2020. It would mean our primary system is fundamentally broken and some people's votes are absolutely worthless. Oh, that's, that's it? Oh, 
They are worthless. Okay, my mistake. <laughs> I love land of many khakis. That's a state slogan we've been waiting for. Also, uh, last week tonight, HBO host John Oliver interrupted his discussion of problems with the jury system in the U.S. to deliver a weird rant against the city of Danbury before he calmly continues discussing the lack of minority representation in juries. Here's John Oliver. I know exactly three things about Danbury. USA Today ranked it the second best city to live in in 2015. It was once the center of the American hat industry. And if you're from there, you got a standing invite to come get a thrashing from John Oliver, children included, you. <laughs> so, Colin, what, what's the beef with Danbury? I think the unanchored <laughs> randomness of it was sort of the point of the joke that that, you know, I mean, it just sort of I, and I think also, as usual, Oliver was trying to make some pretty uh, complicated arguments about uh, the particularly about the Batson rule in terms of unconstitutionally disqualifying jurors based on race. He had done some pretty good research or somebody had. I didn't even know that Iowa Law Review article that he was citing talking about jury um, pools from Hartford and New Britain. Um, I will say that I thought he could do a little bit more research. If he wants to go after Danbury, there actually are some kind of funny things that you can play around with, including, you know, Mark Bowden has been kind of at the center uh, of uh, the immigration debate mm -hmm. in Connecticut for 15 years now. Back in 2005, they had this anti-volleyball ordinance that was clearly directed at the Ecuadorian population. So you could really play around with that and, and have some fun. Uh, I wasn't sure that, I mean, I guess it was kind of funny as a random rant. <laughs> uh, Caitlin, I thought it was nice that Bridgeport finally got a pass. Pick on Danbury, not Bridgeport. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that's a fair point. And um, I also think that I don't, I don't know how familiar John Oliver's team is with uh, Mark Downton, but of all of the mayors to pick on, he's a pretty good sport, <laughs> and he uh, he's very charismatic. He's you know been in the spotlight before. Um, for his various live tweetings of things and uh, he's been on the weather channel you know it's not I don't know how calculated it was if it was that random or if they were like hey here's a good sport um, but of all the meals to pick on uh, they probably picked a good one well I think Mark Bowden isn't he big papa <laughs> yeah I, I tell you, it was, it was an hilarious uh, <laughs> episode, and I, I really enjoyed it. And, and you know, and I think what was also just fascinating to me about it was just how serious the topic actually was, right? And, uh, and like Colin, I mean, there were some insights, and, and the part about Connecticut and New Britain came as a surprise to me. And just sort of the loop back to an early discussion of, uh, that we were having about the conventions and, and Caitlin's points about how young people uh, tune out the conventions, for example, and young people in general don't read as much news uh, as uh, you know previous generations of young people did. But what's interesting is that shows like Colbert, shows, uh, shows like J uh, Oliver, and shows like The Daily Show, actually young people tune into those things. And so if, if young people are actually watching an episode like that, I think they've got a... Uh, a deeper understanding of the, the nature of systemic racism in our society. And that's a good thing. And so it was done at the expense of Dan Barry, but a very informative uh, episode on that show.
Colin, time for feats. We've got less than three minutes. I'll go really fast here. Um, the Senate Intelligence Committee released the fifth and final volume of its investigation in Russia, active measures, campaigns, and interference in the 2016 U.S. election. This is a committee controlled by the Republicans. Uh, this story, which is easy to miss in all the stuff going on this week, it is clear that this committee controlled by Republicans believes that there was Russian interference and that members of the Trump campaign, especially Paul Manafort, collaborated in it. Caitlin. Uh, shout out to all of the postal workers who are continuing to do their job despite uh, suddenly being incredibly politicized. And Bilal Siku, you get the final word. Sure. Um, as you guys probably know, I, I recently lost my brother. Um, and um, I want to give my mother a shout out as a feat mm-hmm. of strength because only be, in part because I called her and told her I'd be on and to tune in to hear me. And so the feat of strength goes to her um, and the strength that she showed when I was there to visit her as we dealt with um, this unexpected uh, tragedy and as we grieved together and just to see her strength to me was just so important in helping me to deal with the loss of my brother. Mm, thinking about you, Bilal, you and your family. Uh, I just want to say quickly, I work with some uh, great colleagues here at Connecticut Public, including my producers, Matt Dwyer, who produces The Wheelhouse every week, and also Carmen Baskoff. It's her birthday. Happy birthday, Carmen. Mm-hmm. Tess Terrible, my other producer, her birthday was last week. We are going to socially distance, get together uh, later this week. We're going to be in a park outside, keeping our distance, but hopefully it'll be great seeing all of them. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks so much to Colin McEnroe, Caitlin Crasselt, and Bilal Siku. Also, Matt Dwyer, thank you. And our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week.